You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back. We have made it over the All-Star Game hurdle. <sighs> Only about 20 games left in the season. And Cody, how, how are you feeling for the stretch run? What's 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 going on? It. I don't know if it feels like this season's been going on for a long time or if it just like started last week. I feel like I go between those things where sometimes I'm like, I don't have enough stats yet to make a, <laughs> an actual prediction about things. And I'm like, oh, the season's like over, actually. That, I, I think the first part is because of all the injuries and COVID protocols and things like that. And the second part, I have to say, I have never been a, a committed to the 82-game season, but it's been okay with me for most of my fandom career. And this is the first season, maybe it's just because we had a couple 72-game seasons. This is the first season where I'm like, this is too long. This, this is really, really long. There's 25 more games left. This is a lot. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's a point, like, I can't watch all of the teams, so there's a point where I start tapering off, and there are some teams that just, like, I go stretches of weeks without watching any games of them, and I feel like... I weeks? Feel, yeah. <laughs> Months? I feel, like, I feel like there's a point now where I'm just not watching, like, a quarter of the league, and I don't plan on doing that. Yeah, are you... When was the last time you voluntarily tuned in for a Pelicans game? Who? <laughs> they, play, they used to be in Charlotte. Uh, oh, uh, Herb yeah. Jones' team. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. Herb Jones's team. That's true. I do fast forward to when Herb Jones is playing defense. It's absolutely glorious. So we do have some housekeeping to get to before we get into some topical stuff today. A number of people asked last week about the two trades that we didn't talk about in our trade reaction podcast, which also was that like a month ago? When was the last time we spoke? Like 2019, somewhere in there, I think. (laughs) One of them was um, Indiana. Tyrese Halliburton trade and my thoughts on this trade are extremely simple Halliburton seems like a really good player I I love his trajectory I love his age he also seemed committed to Sacramento which is very rare I'm genuinely not sure why Sacramento has an NBA team at this point from a kind of economic and historical perspective there are other cities that you think would have landed with an NBA team because they're because just so everyone understands where I'm coming from historically Teams were in very small markets, and they've kind of um, graduated to bigger markets over the years. And now the teams that are still in smaller markets have some historical foothold and and rooting there. But the Kings don't. The Kings were originally in Kansas City. Anyway, um, it just feels like the the Pacers got a slam dunk because they have a player that could be a really good player for a long time. And the Kings gave that away for I'm 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 not entirely clear why. See, this is interesting because I actually feel like I understand what the Kings are doing more than the Pacers. Because here's where I'm coming from with the Kings, right? They last made the playoffs when Twitter was founded, right? 2006. And I feel like if we're looking at it objectively, like Sabonis is a better player 
than Halliburton is at this moment. So sure. if, you're, if you're setting yourself up to maybe be like a perennial, we might be an eighth or seventh seed. Sure, that sounds like a good move for a team that's starved for playoff stuff. But if you're building around Halliburton, like the Pacers are doing, not 100% sure what their end goal with that. Because I don't think you're, you're bad enough to tank and get a good pick, but you're also not good enough to really compete for anything in there. I guess I just don't understand building for an eighth seed. Um, and in this case, this season, it wouldn't be the eighth seed. And then I think the, the shortest way I can summarize why I think this is a lopsided trade is for... For, I don't know, 2023 to 2030, who was more likely to have more value? It seems like Halliburton by a, by a landslide, right? I, th- I mean, he's got his age curve to grow into. He's younger. Uh, I mean, do you, do you think I'm off on that? Do you think Sabonis is just going to be like a really good player for another six or seven years? I think you're right if Halliburton is paired up with someone. Like, if he has an 0-1 next to him, I think Halliburton's impact increases. But if he's kind of a lone star and he's miscast in that sort of role... I don't think we ever actually see actualized Halliburton. An offensive number one. I like I like the terminology there, 0-1. Um, the other trade that people asked about that, boy, we talked about it a lot in back channels, was the Dallas trade with Chris Tapp's Porzingis. And I liked the trade. I didn't think Porzingis was working very well in Dallas, and I don't think his price is very high around the league uh, and on the market for teams that are buying and selling. So from my perspective, looking at what Dallas is doing, I think they were trying to have addition by subtraction on both ends of the court. I don't think their defense, which is something that Porzingis gives promise as a rim protector, I don't think their defense got worse. I don't think he's the driving force behind their defense. I think it's these other guys like Maxi Kleba and Dorian, Finney, Dorian Finney-Smith, players like that. And then to get back, Davis Bertans at least gives you dimensionality he at least is a toy or a weapon that you can use off the ball in a slightly different way because he's in a totally different class of shooter than Porzingis was like Bertans is a legitimately really good shooter and of course Porzingis is at like 28 percent this this season so he's struggled so I like that component of it and then um, Spencer Dinwiddie, I mean, he just doesn't look physically right after the injury right now, but it's possible that he's someone who could return to form. We've seen so many guys 18 to 24 months out of that ACL injury come back. So I, I get what Dallas is doing. I think where a lot of people were maybe taken aback by the Porzingis trade is that the the price return for him was relatively low, but I just, I don't think he has a, demands a huge um, return around the league in general. So yeah, Porzingis, he's had a really down year on shooting. Uh, athletically, he doesn't look like he was the same player from a couple of years ago. I thought he was a legit like top-tier rim protector in the league. So where, what do you think actual Kristaps Porzingis is? Do you think this year is more like how he's going to be moving forward? Or do you think he, this was like a weird year-long regression for him? No, I think it's probably more like this season. Um, it's hard to see at this point, the way the game is played, how he fits in offensively even even defensively if he moved a little better you might get more horizontal play from him you might get a little bit more perimeter play or something but so many of these great defenses I mean I think we're gonna talk today about a couple teams that are really excelling defensively and even the Mavs themselves it's it's versatility right it's the ability to switch cover the court play different schemes Porzingis does have a nice rim protection element even still at this point in my opinion but 
I'm not sure what team he lands on where you're like, yes, this is a, this is a positive offensive player, and we're jazzed about having you know one of the ten best defensive players in the league or whatever. Because I I don't know how he. I don't see how he gets to that ceiling. Let's put it that way. He's a bit of a ceiling capper without being good enough to be like a lone star on a team. That's yeah. 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 That's, I mean, that's a, that's a kind way to put it. I think that's the right description, right? But he's just not even close. So that's probably why his uh, value around the league isn't particularly high right now. So another team that we didn't discuss because it was just a small situation, but I'm worried about them at this point. That's the Milwaukee Bucks. The Bucks, they made a, a minor move. They brought in Sergi Baca, and they sent out uh, Dante DiVincenzo. And then right when that happened, Pat Connaughton was injured, and he's out. So, Cody, as the local... Uh, I mean, you're, you're, not, you're not in Milwaukee, but you're still pretty close. As, as the resident Bucks champion on this show... How are you feeling about this team and specifically their depth? We know the big three is still there, uh, but, I mean, who else is playing at this point? Yeah, and for anyone that's angry about that, calm down. I lived in Wisconsin for like 26 years, so, you know, <laughs> it, it's okay. I'm, I'm newly over in Minneapolis. Do they get upset when you leave? You know what? They, there was just a couple parades and whatnot, but uh, we'll ignore that. Maybe it was for the finals. Maybe it was for me. Who knows? Um... I wasn't worried about the Bucks like, all season. With the whole Brooke Lopez thing, I was like, this is fine. Even if Brooke Lopez doesn't come back, like, maybe they'll be fine. They probably can't win a championship without him. Uh, but now, like, I'm seeing games with, like, Jordan Wara is a starter. Uh, this Lindell Wigginton is getting, like, 28 minutes once in a while. Lindell Wigginton. Lindell yeah. Wigginton. Never seen him before. Good for him. Like, good for him. But, like... I thought the point was like their guard rotation was solid. They had George Hill. They had Pat Connaughton, Dante DiVincenzo, Grayson Allen, all of these guys that can kind of be like, even with Drew Holiday, like that's a flexible group of rangy defenders that you really don't want to go against. A bunch of uh, physical guys that are just going to get in your face, that can bend the defenses with shooting. And all of a sudden, like one of them's not there. The other one's injured. George Hill is you know, starting to get a little bit over the hill. And Drew Holiday just might be a little bit overtasked for everything that he's doing there. So part of me was like, Bucks need more big men. So it's kind of a win they got Serge Ibaka. I found it maybe kind of odd they got rid of Cousins because he was at least a big body. Um, so I, I thought it was a win at first until Connaughton went out. And I'm like, man, now they now they need guard play. So I'm, I'm nervous. I'm pretty nervous. I just want to know what their playoff rotation looks like because... I'm like you. I've been pretty comfortable with the Bucks all year. You know, a couple weeks ago, you popped the quiz on me and said, give me your Eastern Conference power rankings because the Eastern Conference is just some crazy March Madness parody thing right now. And my brain went right to the Bucks with their big three. And I think their big three is still, you know, you get deep in playoff series against these high quality teams that they're going to have to go up against. And especially games four, five, six, seven. Those big three will eat up a ton of minutes. But, man, it's reminding me of the 11 heat a little bit, where the, the guys around the big three... Bobby Portis has, has played well, obviously. He played well in the playoffs last year. I don't trust body, Bobby Portis in the sense that he, I think, needs a specialized role to succeed in. I think he needs the right type of series at times to succeed in. And 
you're just going to be in matchups where the difference between having Brooke Lopez on the floor for 30, 35 minutes a game to complement Bobby Portis versus Bobby Portis is like, I don't know, is he starting against Joel Embiid? How, how, how would that work? Uh, these are the things I'm worried about. Grayson Allen, I've talked about being much, much more successful as an NBA player than I would have thought, but I would not trust him to play 20 to 30 minutes a game in a high-level playoff game and be able to have the same success that he's had in the regular season. And oh, by the way, Cody, those are the best other players that I just mentioned. After that, assuming, you know, maybe Connaughton comes back, so he would be the number four guy. But after that, you get to Jordan Wara, you get to, um, I don't even know, Thanasis? Like, who, who's, who's there? Who's going to play? Is it Sandro? Um, can you say his last name? Uh, I used to be able to, but now yeah. you just rely on Mamu. I said his full name once, and someone's like, dude, just say Mamu. I'm like, all right, fine. Yeah. I mean, is he going to play? Like, what, what happens with the depth on this team? I think... The only thing I can really hang my head on is when you look at uh, when when Giannis, Chris, and Holiday are all on the court together. When they're on the court together, they have a plus 13 plus minus. Plus 13 on, in just a shade under 500 minutes. And most of that's offensively. They're like a plus, uh, plus 11 uh, offensively when you're looking at uh, relative to the rest of the league. So maybe maybe you can rely on them just to be brilliant through all of that. But this is one of those that like if somebody's out for a game or you really do have to rely on somebody else over the course of a quarter or two. I don't know. That's, that's just a really razor's edge that the Bucks are, are existing on at the moment. So we've been obsessed with the East, I feel like, for the last few weeks. And one of the reasons is that the teams near the back of the standings are turning corners. And we talked about the Boston Celtics at the trade deadline and how we were big fans of what they did in reconfiguring their team and bringing in Derek White. And now the Celtics, they won nine in a row over that stretch. Um, they are surging in the standings, and they now have the best adjust, adjusted point differential among the teams in the Eastern Conference, even though they're in sixth place. Their defense has been a huge thing. Since January 1st, make sure I get my stats right here. Since January 1st, the Celtics have the best defense in the league by far, their defensive rating is around 102 since January 1st. The league average is 113. And a lot of that is an easy schedule. You know, going through preparation for this episode, we were looking at some Celtics games and trying to figure out who were the guys on the floor that these people are guarding. Like, I legitimately had to look up multiple players who just aren't even in databases. Like, they don't exist on Basketball Reference. Basketball Reference is like, no, Ben, no one wears number 14 for the Chicago Bulls. And I'm like, someone does. He's... (laughs) He's on the court right now. This is a created, um, a, a generated player in 2K. Like, it's somebody that's just, like, thrown together some stats and a name. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm. that's what I was thinking. And so, yes, I do think the schedule has played a part of it. But even if you gave them a couple points per game on the defensive end from the schedule, they would still be the best defense over that stretch and still look like one of the better defenses in the league. And um, Brian Scalabrini was on the low post with Zach Lowe this week. I don't know if you caught this, but they were talking about this specific dynamic that I find very interesting and goes back to um, the Enhanced Podcast, the last Enhanced Podcast, Scotty Pippen in the 1998 finals roaming off of bigs. What the Celtics have tried to do with Rob Williams, it looks like, as the season has progressed, is move him sort of away from the point of attack action 
when possible. So that means maybe putting him on a wing or a forward instead of guarding the other team's center and trying to make sure someone like Al Horford or, Al Horford or Grant Williams matches up with the center and is playing the ball screening action while Rob can kind of stay low, stay on the weak side, come off a corner man. And this works especially well when you play the DeAndre Hunters of the world, you know, who aren't necessarily great shooters or great um, offensive threat threats. And what that allows Rob to do is access this incredible shot blocking from the weak side. Yeah, and this this just shows a great example of a coach understanding his player's strengths. Like, this makes me think back to the beginning of the season where I think Chauncey Billups just, like, publicly railing against Robert Covington. He's like, oh, he needs to try more on defense at the point of attack. It's like, dude, like, that's not Robert Covington. Like, get that man off ball and let him roam around. And uh, Yudoka is finally, not finally understanding that, but he's understanding the weapon that he has uh, in Robert Williams. I mean, when we're talking about, like, shot, shot tracking defensively like both in like the Olajuwon sense where like there's a couple plays where somebody drives and Rob's like I'm gonna block a shot oh you tried to dish it off just getting my hands down there and I'm gonna get a steal but also his recovery speed like how quickly he can get into the air his double jump he looks like a Super Smash Bros character uh he can like (laughs) teleport from like the perimeter down to the rim and block somebody he's really it's it's really incredible to see somebody that size get that high and off the ground that quickly his physical tools are incredible. And to your point, I think they, I get the idea because I think they fit coming off the ball. When, when he's on the ball, he gets to access that length and that incredible quick jumping where he doesn't really have a load up time. He just kind of springs off the court. But that can get you out of position. You have slightly different defensive assignments. And if you're on the big, let's say you're in a drop coverage. And so the Celtics have him in the screening action. He's dropping back. If he commits to the ball at a certain point, that opens up a rolling, sometimes vertical, long center for the lob or the laydown and the easy finish. This is a slightly different thing than if a Grant Williams or a Horford can stay at home on those kind of plays and Williams is flying off the corner. His straight line speed movement getting into his jump um, is perfect for this. Like, it's just incredible weak side shot blocking. And that's a different read and a different kind of advantage to give up to the offense than, hey, we're playing two on two in the basket with a guy who is a, yes, he's a great shot blocker, but he's not um, Draymond Green or he doesn't have the like subtle mastered perfection of playing ball screen and, and playing drop coverage. So I do think it's something that uh, speaks to Rob's strengths. He's incre- like his shot blocking numbers are absurd. Cody, have you checked them out? Yeah, what I'm trying to I'm trying to look at the numbers here, but I remember I was looking at them. Something like a a career block percentage of eight point one percent. Just just yeah, it's just insane. All time stuff. Redi- and he's at a career low this season, and it's like still seven percent. Um, you mentioned the hands. He does have decent enough hands to get steals. And I think what's really interesting about this concept, besides connecting back to what I was saying with like the Romer thing with Pippen in the finals or Draymond Green or whomever, but he can still switch a little bit. You know, you might not think of him as the greatest perimeter defender, but he's not someone that is automatically a mismatch out there. So what the Celtics do is 
if he has to be in a situation where he's switched onto a guard, he's just going to do his best to hold his own and he can use his length to block shots. He's um, There's one play where he just rips somebody with his hands and starts a fast break going the other way. I mean, some of it athletically, the physical tools are, are really spectacular, but they also do a tremendous amount of communicating and switching off the ball both in terms of what we would think of as scram switching behind the play. So you're pre-switching behind the play, which takes a lot of communication. But also um, stuff like as the pick and roll is happening, if Rob is coming off the corner to help on that action, Marcus Smart and, and Rob can communicate in real time. It's really impressive. And just basically what Marcus Smart is doing in that situation is he is peel switching to the corner. He's he's going two guys away and like saying, oh, I'm just going to head over to the corner and take, take Rob's man and Rob will match up with this big center coming down the lane. And all of this, I think, speaks to what we're talking about where you optimize a player and his weak side help and try to cover up any weaknesses he have in, has in other situations. And I don't think it's been the game changer for Boston, but man, you start to look at Jalen Brown, Marcus Smart, Jason Tatum, Grant Williams is playing much better. Like he's, he's improved in terms of the reads that he makes in the games, the, the tricks that he's starting to understand how to use his body. You are now talking about a team that I think overall, regardless of who's healthy, is probably like a top five defensive team in the entire league. They're certainly in that ballpark for me right now. I think something that really helps them uh, first of all, th- there's actually like two elements to their defense that I really like with their personnel that you re- they're really maximizing well with their coaching. Number one, it's the fact that every one of those guys that's out there, uh, even though Marcus Smart can be smaller, like you don't necessarily want to post up Marcus Smart. Like he's a great post defender for being a guard. And same with Jalen yep. Brown. Like Jalen Brown has his warts defensively. But again, this is a very strong, sturdy guard that you can't easily post up. Tatum's a big guy. Horford's a big body. So they have five guys that you can't really take advantage of in the po- in the in the post. The other thing that's really helpful is that they have three legitimate rim protectors when they're running a lineup of Horford, Tatum, and, and Rob Williams. And I think that's pretty rare. Is like you don't necessarily need to station just one of them near the rim to protect the paint. You can sort of rotate each one of them out. And I think there's differences between them. Obviously, Rob Will is probably the best, uh, at least recovery help rim protector. But the other two are also strong rim protectors. Tatum especially for his position and I think when I'm thinking about teams that do a lot of switching because the Celtics do a lot of switching and when I'm thinking about like the Miami Heat and how much switching they do when Bam Adebayo is out on the perimeter he's easily their best rim protector whereas Jimmy Butler really secretly has never been a great rim protector so Mm. you're kind of leaving him on an island there so I think that's secretly a big part of what makes the the Celtics defense were even more yeah that's a great point it's just a lot of really good defensive players when you think about the personnel I mean smart for his position, whether he's playing the one or the two, has some rim protection value depending on the context of the play. Uh, Jalen Brown is obviously tremendously tremendously athletic. Derek White coming in is a solid, buttoned-up defender, active hands, can get in passing lanes, kind of understands where to be. And I go back to a theme that we've talked about all season. This goes back to my video on the Warriors' defense. Teams that can communicate really well and are ahead of the play. It's one thing to say we're going to switch, 
but you have to switch intelligently and you have to switch with personnel where you're not giving up huge advantages to the offense. And that's kind of what I see when I see the Celtics. Yes, they've had a very easy schedule, so it's hard to get a ton of sample. It's your point about how we played so many games. This is like 20, 25 games. The Celtics have played really well. But when you actually go through the film and the data, it seems like every night somebody's best, two best offensive players were out when they played them. So we don't have a really robust sample against great teams yet. But the thing I keep reminding myself with Boston is when you smash weak teams in the NBA, that is almost always a predictor that translates over to good teams. It doesn't mean that you are going to be the best of the good teams, but it means if you're beating the Orlandos of the world by 20 a night, if you go into Philadelphia and beat them by 50, regardless of who plays, that's an indicator that when you play the Bucks and the Heat and all these teams when they're healthy, you're going to be competitive at the least. And Cody, that's why the, that's why the East is just so... Oh my God, it's so crazy right now. Yeah, they really are. And I think, I think Rob was actually out the game when the Celtics just smashed the Sixers. Yes, correct. And I thought yeah. that looked like a really strong defensive uh, performance from them. So it's not even necessarily that Rob is like the glue holding their defense together. They just real like uh, six, seven strong defensive players out there. Well, this makes more sense to me from an institutional standpoint, because Brad Stevens, I think, has always been a really good defensive coach going back to Butler. And then he brings in Ime Odoka. And Ime Odoka, for the non-hipster, hardcore historian fans, um, was never a huge name on any team that he ever played on. But he was this maybe dying breed, older generation. He's like an Isaac Okoro player, okay? And Okoro's young, so he could develop more skills. But Idoka was just like a hard-nosed, defensive, grinding wing, hoped to be a 3 and D guy. So I would expect all of this along with the Celtics personnel, to give them a defensive identity, right? To have that be the focal point of their team's success. And I think all that we've seen recently with the huge push in wins, the huge push in point differential, the fact that they're first in adjusted point differential in the East, I think all of this coming from their defense and saying, yeah, when the, when the cards get down in the playoffs... What Eastern team, maybe the Bucs with their size, with Giannis, I don't know. But what Eastern team do you look at when you play the Celtics and you go, no, I don't like them at all in that matchup? Well, before I get to that, so I, I referenced a statistical indicator earlier. I think what the Bucks I said when their big three is on the court, they're like plus 13.2. In 470 minutes, so just about the same amount as that Bucks trio, when Tatum, Rob, and Horford are on the court together, they're plus 14.9, plus 14.9 and most of that is on defense they're like a they're like a 12 and a half points uh per 100 possessions better on defense than league average so this isn't just like a blip for the last little bit like this is across the entire season that at least when that trio of players is on they're an extraordinarily strong defensive team so you're saying that's good i i think that's okay <laughs> i think so i'm man i don't know because you know they're also a big team Giannis might struggle with a combination of Tatum, Brown, Smart, all of them being thrown at them. Um, maybe a quick guard would be the way that you beat this team. I don't know. What do you think about that? Do you think a quick perimeter player that's able to get paint touches is probably the best way to attack this sort of defense? Yeah, I think so. And I think also uh, shooting. If you have a lot of shooting, um, one thing when you switch is you're vulnerable to that brief moment for the pull-up three. Right. And Trey, uh, Trey Young, I think, is the best at this, where he just 
intuitively has a great feel at this point for screen coverages and knowing when, okay, one, I can reject the screen. He's a master of rejecting the screen. But two, as the screen sets up and as you have this dance between the screener, the ball handler, and the two defenders involved, he can, he can sense a moment where a defense is going to switch because he knows they're switching defense. And that gives him a cushion of four, five, six, seven feet. And if the screen is set at the right depth, you know, that's a, what, a 36% shot for him or something like that. So I'm not worried about them playing the Hawks, but I think some combination of shooting and being able to have a lot of guys that can attack off the bounce. The flip side is if you're one of these teams that is going to have a kind of negative um, offensive player out there, it's going to allow Williams and the Celtics to continue to play this style of defense, which I think only adds adds to their strengths, basically, at this point. So I, I think the Celtics are probably a better team than the one I'm going to throw out there, but I would like to see a Chicago-Boston matchup. I think that Ooh. I think that Bulls matchup, I think that guard play would be really interesting to see. Oh, man, the Bulls are super fun, and they just have to be healthy. That's, you know, that's, that's kind of where I'm at with them. It's just really unfortunate that I feel like I haven't I feel like I haven't seen a fully healthy Bulls team since like November. When when has Caruso last played? When did he? When was his last game? Well, well, he played briefly and then um, you remember hurt the hurt the wrist against oh, Grayson. The Allen. Grayson Allen play. The Grayson Allen incident. Yeah, we won't bring that up. No. Um, let me. I should add one more thing about the Celtics. Just statistically, we had um, we had Rob Antle pull some four man unit numbers this week for us and the Celtics four-man unit of uh, Smart, Brown, Tatum, Williams. It's not quite at like the top of the league teams, but you also only see above them the same couple teams. You only see like Utah, Denver, Memphis, Phoenix, healthy Golden State, and then you get to the Celtics. So it's this kind of thing where maybe there's no great team in the East, but there's a lot of really good teams. And yeah, Brooke Lopez, you better get back soon. Yeah, absolutely. He's the type of guy that they're probably going to need against him. So I'm going to celebrate before I transition to maybe a meaner question. But, uh, you know, Rob Williams has a couple of the best blocks this season. Like he has this block against Cameron Payne where he's like on ball and he gets the floater. It's one of the most ridiculous blocks I've seen. I don't know how he times that out. Now, I don't feel as bad asking that question. this next question. Does Derek White... Does Derek White have the prettiest jump shot that's not that effective? <laughs> that that is such a Cody question. Um, I pr- no, I don't know. Who is a who is a nicer no. looking jump shot that's around like thirty two percent or whatever he is from three? I, don't, I feel like a lot of southpaws have really nice looking jump shots, regardless of whether it goes in or not. Is that just me? Do you just like the way that that looks like the Michael Red like side catapult yeah, situation? Yeah, there's something about that coming off the hand. I don't know. What do you think? I don't know. I don't think so. I couldn't think of anyone off the top of my head. I don't know. You think it's that nice looking? Yeah. Every time he shoots, I'm like, that's a good stroke. That's a good shooter. And then it doesn't always go in. Can we talk about Rudy Gobert? Please. Maybe. Please. Please. <laughs> so so Rudy Gobert missed a ton of time this month. He just came back. The Jazz were one and eight without him. They won five in a row once they got some help back. They've, they've at times been decimated this season. Utah is another team that 
didn't seem to do much at the deadline. They got rid of Joe Ingles, but Joe Ingles was out for the rest of the year with his knee injury. And then instead of bringing in a big forward or maybe a versatile big man or someone that isn't a drop big that you could come with a different look, they brought in Keel Alexander Walker. I don't... I. Didn't entirely understand that move, Cody. No, that doesn't necessarily move the needle. Like, is he known as really a lockdown type of defender? I feel like that's the kind of guy they need on the perimeter. We've talked about this multiple times, about them needing stronger perimeter defenders. Maybe that's what they were thinking. Maybe they identified him. I mean, there's just sort of a, a, a miasma of players in New Orleans where you're like, I don't know what's going on defensively with all of these guys. They're not particularly good in um, statistical terms or any any like performance indicators you would look at. Their team defense isn't very good. But maybe looking at something deeper or just some film study, um, like I said, I don't watch too many Pelicans games anymore. So maybe that's what they're going for. I don't know. This whole Gobert conversation, like I don't, even, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to step lightly around it. I don't get it. If you're the kind of person that's just like questioning how good Rudy Gobert is on defense, still, I, I do not understand this kind. Con- Why do we have to have this conversation still? Like, I understand that there's a lot of off the court things that you can clown Rudy Gobert for, and he doesn't seem like the most popular play in the league. Blah, blah blah blah. But man, can this guy protect the rim? And man, is he a lot more mobile than people will have you say? Like, th- legitimately, like. Can you count on your hands how many rim protectors this century are better than Rudy Gobert? I'm not sure if you can. I don't know if you if you cut off three fingers, I don't know if you could count the number of rim protectors <laughs> that are better than Rudy Gobert right now. Well, certainly in the regular season. I mean, in the regular season, he seems to have um, a massive defensive impact. And I don't know if it guarantees you the best defense in the league, but I think it certainly takes you to the top five um, almost guaranteed like top 10, no matter who, who else you seem to put out there, as long as you has, have a reasonable scheme that can funnel people toward him, allow him to play in the paint, play your drop coverage from night to night. And so now that he's missed 14 games this season, Cody, this is the second time in the last five years he's missed substantial time. And of course, that five years goes back to the beginning of the Donovan Mitchell era, where we've kind of had this team construction, roughly, that's been the same. It's obviously evolved with the addition of Mike Conley over the last few seasons. But if we look at those two seasons, 2022 and 2018, Utah has played 93 games with Gobert and Donovan Mitchell. And in those 93 games, they've played at a 58-win pace with a defense that is five points better than league average. So their offense has been successful. I think that's another thing about Gobert because he doesn't have a traditional post-up game um, or really much of an off-the-dribble or shooting or anything like that. People think he's a really, really poor offensive player. But he's playing in an era where there aren't many guys who, in his position, you want to go to in the post uh, to either score or create or run offense through. So he doesn't take anything off the table, and he's got his offensive rebounding, his rim running, his gravity. The Jazz could maybe even take advantage of that a little bit more at times just because he's such a great finishing target going under the basket at like 7-2. He's a huge man in so many um, situations against smaller teams. And then defensively, here's what happens in the 32 games that he's missed 14 this this season and 18 in 2018. 
that's confusing. <laughs> 18 in 2018. Um, with Donovan Mitchell playing in these 32 games that Gobert has missed, Utah goes from 58-win team down to 42 wins, and almost all of that is on the defensive side of the ball, where they go from five points ahead of the league to two points worse than the league. And I'm not going to sit up here and say that I think Rudy Gobert by himself is worth seven points per game on defense in the regular season. That would that would just be crazy. Um, but I do think this is indicative, even with some noise, of how massive his defensive impact is in the regular season and what that does to your team and your roster construction. And since this is the second time we've seen this, and since last season he was healthy and dominant and Utah had the one seed and all this stuff, I mean, the fact that he is not mentioned in the MVP race basically ever seems like, um, I want to say oversight, but it just legitimately seems like a prejudice toward the way he plays, the type of player he is, the game he has, the cultural stuff around it. It's it's bizarre to me that people want to constantly elevate any player from a top seed. Like, oh, that they need it. DeMar DeRozan, he's going to be the MVP. Devin Booker, he's an MVP of the National Basketball Association because this team is winning. But when it's with the Jazz, that's very muted about a guy who seems to have massive regular season impact. And it doesn't matter how you slice it. Like at the end of each season, I I try and I, I mostly use like a basketball indexes, LeBron impact metric. That's that's the one I really cozy myself up to and, and know the most. And I try and slice it on like a per game level and like total impact across the entire season. And pretty much every of the last couple of seasons, no matter how I slice and dice that, like those numbers are telling me Rudy Gobert should be in whatever MVP conversation you're having, Gobert should be not necessarily at the top, but he should be in it. And some of those impacts when it comes to defense, like if you look at any other strong defensive player, I off the top of my head, I'm trying to think when you run the numbers for someone like Ben Wallace when he missed a few games in like 04 and 05 and uh, maybe Matumbo. I can't think if it was Matumbo or, or Duncan that I'm thinking of, but they, they have similar huge statistical impacts. So if you... If you're also going to be standing here and talking about how awesome some of these other players are defensively and why it secretly made like Ben Wallace the finals MVP of 2004, I don't understand why we also can't translate that to Gobert. And I get it. He doesn't have like the playoff success as somebody like Ben Wallace, who probably had a more flexible defensive game when it came to those sorts of matchups. But I don't understand why there's such a such a disconnect between those two things. He's like a heliocentric defensive player. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Um and I think that that is what I was alluding to a little bit with the prejudice, where if you're a heliocentric offensive player, you seem to get double counted. You seem to get more points because you're doing more by yourself. If you notice a ton of MVP conversations, people start to try to tinker things to say, well, he's doing more by he's doing more with less or he's doing the same with less. Or he might be doing less with less, but he's got less. So what's most important here that I index on is how much heavy lifting is this guy doing by himself? And that seems to only be applied on the offensive side. It doesn't seem to get the same, you know, sort of mirror version on the defensive side of the ball. Uh, here are basketball references, MVP uh, award trackers. They have, a, they have a fairly simple model that tries to predict where someone will rank in the MVP. And I shouldn't say it's fairly simple because I don't, I don't know how other models that try to project this as well. So maybe it's, maybe it's the most complex on the market. But 
if you look at where Utah is, what Gobert's raw numbers are, what his advanced numbers are, here are their um, top, let's do top, I'll do top nine. We'll do top nine candidates. We'll stop there. So in order, Jokic, 36% probability to win the MVP. He's the favorite. Giannis, 26% probability to win the MVP. He's second. Joel Embiid, 12% probability. Now, is that reflective of the fact that because he's a scorer, because he's in Philadelphia, big market, because he has the personality and you have the East Coast thing, he's being over-touted this season? Is it a scoring thing? I don't know. It could be also a blind spot in the model. Um, Then you get, in order, I'll just read them off, Chris Paul, Rudy Gobert, Steph Curry, Luka Doncic, John Morant, and the ninth one is DeMar DeRozan. Um, I think for the most part, we can quibble on some of these guys, but for me, you've got your big-time slam dunk. These are the best players in the league. It doesn't matter what your criteria is. They probably need to historically be at the top of your ballot. And then you've got other guys, and I think Gobert would fall in this category, Paul, um, maybe even John Moran. I don't know. You've just got other guys that are there. That seems to be the list. It makes sense to me, but I don't hear Gobert talked about a lot. No, and it, it almost like caps what the Jazz are trying to do because what's so special about him is you get him on a team and you just said this, like the top five, top ten defensive thing. Like the Jazz are almost like, all right, that's it. We don't have to do any more defensive work. We can just load up on offensive players because it's fine. And you can't do that with any of those other guys. Like I'm not saying I would take any of those other guys over Gobert, but if you have Gobert, you can kind of slack off a little bit on defense. You can be like, all right, he's going to cover up everything else. We can build our team with a more offensively focused idea. But if he had a strong defense around him, like let's say we transplanted him to a team that had a bit stronger of a defensive core, maybe we would actually be thinking of Gobert more. I think we probably would be thinking of Gobert higher than all of these numbers are telling us. Yeah. Philosophically speaking, um, what do you think about the MVP having postseason knowledge kind of baked into the vote? Meaning, you heard it with LeBron. Like, well, LeBron didn't have the best regular season or his team underachieved or whatever the whatever the argument may be. But I know he's the best player, so I'm either going to vote for him or have him like second or third. And I think there's been a decent amount of historical precedent for this thinking. But here it cuts the other way where... Gobert's regular season, I think at this point, if you are doubting Gobert's regular season value as an overall player and as a defender, you are basically just in denial of a ton of things that have happened on the scoreboard when he's been on the court for like four or five years. I I, I don't know how to mount an argument against that. But the argument seems to be, well, we kind of know that he loses some of that value in the playoffs. And therefore, we also kind of know that as promising as Utah looks at times, they're really defanged when we get to the postseason to some degree. And maybe that's, you know, this season, it's the same thing. I'm not sure. We'll see how the maybe Cody, maybe Nikhil Alexander Walker is the ball stopper they were looking for. That would be a very interesting development. But assuming we have the same thing, this seems to then carry a narrative into following seasons where in the following seasons, people come out and say, uh, yeah, okay, I know Gobert's... Yes, I looked at I looked at B-Ball Index's LeBron, and I know he's plus seven in defense, and the next closest person is plus three, but uh, the Jazz... Uh, I'm, I don't take the Jazz seriously. Which also doesn't really make sense to me, because we talked about the, talked about this with Jakob Pertl before, but when we look at his play-by-play in basketball reference, it's like 
green, 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 the regular season. When you go to the playoffs, his first three postseasons are a bunch of red. Like we see negative 10, negative 15, negative 17. Those are bad. But his last two playoff runs, 21, 20, both very solidly green. His on-off this last offseason, um, this last playoffs, plus 15. His on-off uh, two years ago, plus eight and a half. Like, it's not like the Jazz are just cratering when he's on the court. So it's almost like people are living on this, like, I don't know, who are they playing? Who, was it like the Rockets? Was it the Rockets when he had a bunch of some of those really negative numbers off uh, defensively a few years ago? They Well, they had to play the Warriors in 17, I think, and the Rockets in 18. I mean, come on. That's like... yeah. When you say it out loud, that's an absurd schedule to play the seven, the 2017 Warriors and the 2018 Rockets. And when they were playing the Warriors, that's that famous clip where he switches out to Curry and Curry flips him around and he turns around and gets burned. And th- I feel like that's yeah. where everyone just like stopped and they're like, Rudy Gobert cannot play in the playoffs. That counts. That counts for like 500 points. That one play. Yeah. Yeah. It's like Iverson that was stepping a 500 over point shot. Iverson stepping over Ty Lue. Exactly. It's the same thing. That wasn't a jumper in the corner. That was like a 91 point shot that he took. Yeah. (laughs) How did we, how did we, I didn't even know we were going to talk about this today. How did this, how did this happen? Because there's no way to talk about Rudy Gobert without just getting angry and yelling. There just isn't. All right. Let's finish the show on a more positive note. You had a question I think you wanted to ask me about Nikola Jokic. Is that right? I did. Yes. So, okay. first of all, we, we straight up haven't talked about this for, like, a month. Like, a month ago, like, you put out a video on the NBA's YouTube channel. Like, Ben, that's, that's like, the coolest thing ever. Like, I'm going to stop for a second and be like, what? You're literally on the NBA YouTube channel. How did that feel? Oh, how did that feel? Yeah, that, yeah that's that not was, the question. It was very surreal. Yeah. yeah. It, was, it was very surreal. Very very exciting and very surreal. But we can't... This is, this is a show of thinking and analysis. We can't have this stopping for self-reflection. What's, what, so, what's the question? Sorry, I'm done, I'm done celebrating you. Let's go back to stoic, stoic-looking <laughs> questions about numbers, cold, hard facts. So Let's get to the spreadsheet, Cody. Yeah, Come on. Open, opening the spreadsheet right now. So I know you really like your, your championships over replacement player. And a, ba- a big part of that statistic you have is your plus-minus valuations. And I, I was just wondering, like, right now, and I know you don't like doing these a lot while the season is going on, but what do you think Jokic's plus-minus valuation is at the moment? And I think something that really started making me think about this is I think Shaq, Shaq might have the highest offensive plus-minus valuation of any center in your database, and I think he's around a plus-five. So yep. I was just wondering how close is he to that? And then how close is he in general to being, like, mm-hmm. an all-time level season? Um. Well... You're right. I don't like to do these things prematurely. I think that's actually one of the... If it's not a key, it's certainly a hallmark of my own method where the longer I can wait to kind of crystallize something, the the easier I think it is to hold competing ideas in your mind, which, again, for me, is part of the process that allows you to kind of flesh out as many strengths and weaknesses as you can and weigh them holistically. If you get too stuck in a corner, it can be hard not to double count. It can be hard to say, yeah, you know, I know someone like Luka Doncic doesn't have the best shot selection right now, but I can't overly be obsessed with that and penalize him relative to all his other stuff. Yeah, he could be a better three-point shooter, but he's he's still doing X, Y, and Z when he's on the floor. So for Jokic, at this point, Cody, um, I said it last season, he moved into the running for greatest offensive 
big man center, however you want to think of it, you know, because like is Larry Bird, does he count as a big man, stuff like that. But the traditional, for me, it was Shaq, it was Kareem. Kareem, of course, playing in a different era. Do I think Kareem might have more impact if he could play one in, four out with shooters like Olajuwon? Probably. And then there's Jokic. And so at this point, heading into this playoffs coming up, my expectation, the, the thing that I'm asking myself as I watch Jokic, as I compare him to other players, as I try to evaluate his impact in this season, in his time, is this the greatest offensive player of all time? You're just saying, you said player, right? You said player. Player. Not big yeah. man. You said player. Yeah. Yeah. I think you can make the argument. It's very unlikely, unless something crazy happens, that I would actually end the season with that evaluation. But as I've said many times, I think having multiple seasons and different scenarios to try to understand the impact of these skills that you can look at and kind of describe, right? And say, oh, here's a pattern with Jokic. When he gets in the post, he's very difficult to guard. Like his scoring game and his post game is absurdly good. And I just feel like it's an afterthought for people. And maybe you get to a playoff series and that becomes a differentiator because with Jokic right now against the league on a night-to-night basis, on average, if there isn't some special defender in front of him or something like that, it legitimately feels like when he decides to take over a game with his scoring that he could just drop 20 and a quarter on like 9 of 10 shooting. There, what other players do this, right? Durant is an incredible scorer and his mid-range is off the charts right now, but he kind of needs to get hot to have like a, I don't know, a 7 for 10 quarter or something like that. And maybe he'll sprinkle in some threes. Um, Joel Embiid, we've talked about his scoring and how incredible it is. He, he just battering rams you to the free throw line. If he hits a couple jumpers from the elbow, throws in a dunk, then he throws a step back three up. But there aren't many guys that you're just like, Kevin McHale me. Just throw it in and hit like eight of nine hooks, fades, spins, layups. And then when he misses, he gets the offensive rebound and puts it back in. So... I don't, I don't know where I'm going to end up at the end of the season, but I'm pretty sure we're watching one of the 10 best offensive players to ever play basketball, and maybe more. That's incredible. I'm yeah. so glad I asked this question today. This is completely unplanned as well. Those are the best questions happen. You didn't know I was going to say this, did you? No. I, I had no you, idea this was coming. None. How do, you, how do you feel about this? I like it. I feel honored that you're, be, <laughs> that you're saying it to me right now, because I'm running through. I'm like, man... That that includes guys like Magic Johnson, Steve Nash is in my head, mind, Michael Jordan. I'm like, okay, I think those are the I think those are all the guys. Yeah, yeah. And then Jokic is well, in that group with them. Well, the the thing the thing is, he has an argument for like a really strong argument as probably one of the five best passers in NBA history. And then you are talking about someone who, no, maybe if we rank scoring peaks today, he wouldn't be in the top five, top ten. But you are talking about like an absurdly elite scorer combined with an absurdly elite passer combined with a big man who spaces the floor combined with let's face it an elite offensive rebounder as well like Jokic could almost if he just like offensive rebounded and passed he could almost be a really good offensive player if he just didn't try to shoot and score um and then his feet I mean all the little things that you would think of decision-making, quickness of actions, setting screens, where to go, um, stuff like... I mean, has anyone looked at this dude's 
offensive ratings on the court. Like he's out there playing with Aaron Gordon and then whoever else is available. Monty Morris, are you healthy? Will Barton, PJ Dozier, nope, you're injured, you're out of there. Who's going to come up? Facundo Campazzo will throw you out on the floor. Um, Jamichael Green, can you play? Jeff Green, it doesn't matter. And yet when Jokic is on the court, he has one of the highest offensive ratings. The Nuggets have one of the highest offensive ratings in the league. Again, you only see like the the super Utah teams ahead of them and things like that. I mean, that that doesn't that like break your brain? And the thing that really breaks my ba- brain is just talking about the scoring aspect of it. Because I think I think if you asked a bunch of people and said who is definitively the better scorer, Joel Embiid or or Nikola Jokic. I think most people would say Embiid. Like, I think it would skew towards Embiid quite a bit, and I don't think it's that dead set. Like, looking at your backpicks database right now, Embiid's scoring about 34 per 75 on plus 5 relative true shooting. 34. 34. <laughs> Jokic, Jokic is 29 on plus 10. Plus 10. That's that's the part that I think, and we, we've seen this historically with guys like Curry, people have just a really hard time figuring out how to value the outlying efficiency. And I think of outlying efficiency not only as being efficient on your actual shot but a reflection of how much pressure you can exert on the defense based on your scoring because the reason why he's plus 10 in efficiency is is his hook shot on the post is 60 percent his elbow jumper is 55 percent his power moves around the rim are 70 percent like it's just one option after another and as fans it's so easy for us to fall in love with hitting difficult shots right? You watch Durant and Durant could have an 11 point quarter and you, you will get people coming away from that quarter swearing it was the greatest quarter you've ever seen. You're like, did you see those four fadeaways and that pull up three he hit at the end of that run? And you're like, yeah, but Giannis's 12 points on six, six dunks were, that was better offense. And, and that disconnect has been here forever. It's the Shaq versus Earl Boykins thing that I've talked about before. So you almost lose that where Embiid's stuff looks more impressive right now, I think. First of all, we've talked about the aesthetic on what he's like. He physically just looks so good. Knock on wood that he stays healthy through the playoffs. And then secondly, a man that size pulling up from the free throw line with these little hezzy step backs. Now Harden tried to teach him the step back in in practice and he's hitting step back threes. It just looks so crazy. But then you just watch Jokic and Jokic's touch like these little hook shots and flip shots. They, the net doesn't even move. The term I used in the NBA video was, um, it, I feel like I'm watching a guy throw a stone in a pond sometimes. That's what it looks like. And that is a hard thing for us to kind of mentally weigh against the all-time athletic impressive scores. Yeah, I think I, I definitely buy that. I should, I should also note um, Jokic's on-court offensive rating with the Nuggets 118.3 right now at the all-star break um, the only regular players there are two teams with regular players ahead of him one Steven Adams in Memphis and I think we all agree Steven Adams doesn't drive the Memphis train but he's the only Memphis Grizzlies player to get a 119 offensive rating on the court for the Grizzlies when he plays Drew Holiday for the Bucks is also 119.4. And then the aforementioned Utah Jazz, their starting lineup is basically at 119 or 120. Donovan Mitchell, when he plays on the court, oh 
baby Cody, 121 offensive rating. We got to talk about Donovan Mitchell at some point. That guy's interesting player. Yeah, we haven't had the Donovan Mitchell conversation yet. No, that's that's coming up. Um, let's let's leave it there for today. If you want to support this show, check out patreon.com slash thinking basketball. We have our monthly Q&A coming up shortly, a proprietary leaderboard of stats. That's what Cody and I were pulling some of these things from today that update daily. Uh, we've got all kinds of additional content that I can't keep track of anymore. A couple years of written articles and receipts when I was really wrong about things and some extra videos that you can get access to. Patreon.com slash thinking basketball. That is it for this one. Hope you enjoyed this one. Hopefully more than you enjoyed All-Star Saturday night. Um, as always, thanks for listening all the way to the end, and I hope you are having a great day.